0: This is a production from The Companion. Sci-fi served fresh. Welcome to The Companion Podcast with Lawrence Cow and Rebecca Davis. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Lawrence. Without you getting too emotional, actually, I want you to get emotional. (laughs) This is it, Rebecca. This will be the last time. The last time. The next generation cast will be all together how does that make you feel
1: it makes me feel number one nostalgic and number two it, it feels very bittersweet for me personally um next generation was my entry into all things science fiction when i was a kid uh caught a marathon one day of next generation on television and it just i was in it from there And then just so to know that this is likely the last time that we will see any of these characters on screen is very sad to me. And I do get emotional about it. But then I try to think we weren't really expecting to get this this far down the road anyway. So in some ways, you know, it's it's a bonus.
0: Well, Rebecca, maybe we should think about it in a different way. This isn't really the end for all of them. For someone like Jonathan Frakes, he will continue to direct on Discovery or previously on Picard and also the upcoming Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks crossover. Pretty cool.
1: Some of his directed episodes are the best, too.
0: So hopefully this conversation Jonathan Frakes has with his friend and longtime editor of StarTrek.com, Ian Spelling, will cheer us all up.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Ian Spelling and I love Star Trek. I've been so fortunate to have been able to transform that love into writing about Star Trek for decades, serving as editor of Star Trek.com for nine years and writing the official book, Star Trek, the original series, A Celebration. I even got to live the dream of appearing on Star Trek I played a Bajoran on Deep Space Nine and a Adrian in an episode of Voyager. I guess you can consider me a little bit of a Star Trek insider. Now, like many of you, I've been to countless conventions and whether you're a fan or a journalist, we always hear the same old questions. Well, I'm here to try to change that. I wanna take on the challenge of asking questions that have never been asked before. Welcome to my show, to boldly ask. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you, my friend, number one with a bullet, the iconic, the legendary, Jonathan Frakes.
3: Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure to be with you.
2: We all know Jonathan is number one, William Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation, and as the director of Star Trek shows and movies spanning from Next Generation to Strange New Worlds. You ready to give this a go? Can it be done? I can think of no one I'd rather be doing this with. So let's give it a go. All right. How different would Star Trek be without you? And how different would your life and career be without Star Trek? I
3: mean, all levity aside, Star Trek completely changed my, my life, my career, the um, focus of my, my career, and all for the better. So 35 years ago, I was that guy who had just strung together a couple of guest spots, a couple of, you know... Asshole boyfriends and murdering fathers and drug dealers, and on some good shows, some really dreadful shows. And I was, uh, there used to be something called pilot season. Mm -hmm. And during pilot season, every actor in the world, probably, but certainly in LA and New York, tried desperately to get a pilot. And in 1987, the pilot I was able to get happened to be Star Trek The Next Generation. So I didn't know enough about Star Trek to know that that was uh, life-changing, but looking back 35 years, it was hugely significant. Now, the uh, Star Trek without Riker, that's an interesting uh, philosophical question, Mm -hmm. one that I'm not quite sure. You know what I like is the idea that the characters that we've all come to know and love from the other shows, Bones and Spock and Kirk, we find characters not unlike them we find a little bit of spock and data certainly mm-hmm. and the latest i heard which i took as a great compliment is um the character of ortegas which is uh Miss, missy melissa plays on uh, strange new worlds has been compared to Riker, in her sort of daring do and uh, sense of um, loyalty but combined with a sense of fun there are through lines of the, th- of the feelings that you get from the characters that have become. So, Next Gen without Riker would be, who would be the first officer? Probably a woman, I would think.
2: All right, now, beyond your Trek films, you directed Thunderbirds and Clockstoppers. Well, let's get it out of the way. I went to movie jail
3: after Thunderbirds because in the uh, business of show, the director, is responsible for better or for worse for either the success or the failure of a movie or is perceived as responsible for so when thunderbirds tanked financially i was attached to that uh sinking ship if you will thunderbird six five four three two was uh and therefore there was no interest in having me back to direct a movie in spite of the financial and critical success of of, uh, First Contact and Insurrection and Clockstoppers. So I went deep into a uh, sort of a career crisis and personal wound licking and moved here to Maine, ironically, and tried to regroup. A friend of mine named Dean Devlin surfaced and asked me if I would go to Africa direct the second installment of the librarians sequ- uh, movies which is a noah wiley vehicle that had olympia caucus and noah wiley and the great bob newhart mm-hmm. and jane Curtin from saturday night live those were the four regulars in the uh in the librarian franchise so i was so thrilled to be dug out of movie jail or let out of movie jail whatever the metaphor i'm looking for is and given this opportunity. And from that point on, I was back in television and have been eternally grateful ever since.
2: So, Star Trek, Star Trek is breaking boundaries left and right with characters like Adira and Gray, and actors like Blue Del Barrio and Ian Alexander. It's a strange new world for a lot of people out there, learning the new pronouns, processing gender identities. What's that been like for you? on the set. I mean, you're the, you're, you're the veteran guy working with 20 year olds in some cases, right?
3: That's a great question. I, as a director, I felt responsible or feel responsible to lead by example. What is, uh, especially in the, in the pronoun world. And, and it's so important. It's so Star Trek. It's so it's important in in the real world. It's important in our world. And it's particularly important in Roddenberry's vision of the future and our, Handling the present. So, Blue, BLU, when I first worked with them, they were she and they were phenomenal. And I had a scene with Anthony Rapp, ironically, one of the great um, gay icons in show business. So, they were with us and had a leader to help. This is a very complicated situation that they were put in. Mm-hmm. And both. And Anthony and I were not only astounded by Blue's talent and, and uh, complete disarming confidence on the set, but we've responsible, obviously, for getting the, pr- the pronoun, right? It's the least we can do. And yet, because I'm almost 70, and because we use pronouns grammatically, sometimes we make a mistake. And that mm-hmm. mistake, I must say, in my experience, I've never been punished by either for making the mistake, but I'm so conscious and it become easier and easier and easier. But for the for the crew, for whom it was probably more strange because they come from an environment where maybe it's, it's either less part of the world or less part of uh, their, um, morality or whatever the right word is, it it felt extremely important for me to lead by example. And to do that, I had to be on point. And sometimes I, I screwed up and sometimes, but I get better and better and better. And it's very important and it's great that it is part of our brave, strange new world. Not so strange.
2: And then another current issue that we should probably talk about is there are some folks who think that that current Star Trek is too, quote, unquote, woke. Uh, And there are also tons of fans out there who believe that Star Trek was always woke or as woke as it was allowed to be in its day. So my question for you is what are your thoughts on that particular discussion? Because there were limits to what you guys were allowed to do. I mean, you can speak to that directly.
3: Oh God! I'm thinking of the uh, the Outcast. I am. Yes, of course. Um, that would probably have been late 80s, early 90s, and Riker was sent to a planet of androgynous beings, mm-hmm. and clearly the story was meant to be that Riker and this androgynous character um, had chemistry, physical chemistry, emotional chemistry, and the character should have been cast as a man, I think. I think that that was the story that that was being couched in there and they, the network or someone didn't have the guts to do that. So they cast an androgynous looking woman so Riker would not be perceived as gay, perhaps. I'm not quite sure what the thinking was, but it always seemed like a missed opportunity. Right. Now, in light of your last question, people perceive Dr. Trek as too woke because it's dealing with what's really going on in the world in a very timely and conscious and appropriate way, it seems absurd. But also, you know as well as anybody, people react to Star Trek, get so deep into the weeds and so specific about things and are so precious about. I mean, when our show came on the air, nobody wanted to see Mm -hmm. an old English captain with a French name. They wanted Kirk. Right even though he was bald. But they also had um, no interest in data. They wanted Spock. They wanted Bones. And they were re- resistant to our show for many, many years. Right. I remember going to work in the first season of Discovery and the same, the same kind of uh, reaction, without having seen the show, people had by that point really fallen for, um, for Chris Pine and Zach and Carl Urban on the new, Star Trek. JJ's Star Trek. Which which Discovery and uh, Strange New Worlds at Picard are more of a more of that filmic world than than of Next Gen. So I know I I've, I've, I've gone off track on the on the answer. I think we can't be too woke, can we? <laughs> right.
2: And the wild card in a lot of this is the internet, which didn't really exist. Could you imagine yes. If everything you guys did on TNG was put through the ringer on the internet back when you started, the show would have been attacked left and right.
3: Yeah, absolutely true.
2: Fair or not,
3: but right? Absolutely true. I hadn't even thought of that. We're scrutinized. It's sort of like the 24-hour news cycle. Right. Yeah. That changed everything. It still changes everything. changes everything every day. The reaction to a show as it airs, or the commentary on a show while it is on the air about what characters are doing. None of that. But and I'm not sure that's for the better. I don't know about you. It feels right. as if people don't have a time to breathe or time to absorb or,
2: and or to put get, in context. Like, or to maybe, put in context.
3: Or wait to see the entire the arc or the story or or how it plays out or what the right. the setup or they react to the setup without seeing the payoff. There's all kinds of it's fraught with uh, with and and it, and it creates tension and people get tense. We're always told never to read the comments, right? And then if you op- just click that and go in there deep and and we all were so sensitive. I mean, you know, I, I used to be an actor. You remember back in the I did. day, and it, um, you're sensitive. You're sensitive to what people say about you, right? And it's hard to pretend. You can't pretend you're not. Right. right. And You're when
2: people live cancer. tweet, you can't escape it.
3: Oh, my God. Right. So, yeah. And it's done. It's there for life then.
2: And then next question is, you are a big supporter of Pancan, which is the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network.
3: That's great. Thank you for bringing that up. The Pancan organization I got involved with because of Kitty Swink. Kitty Swink is a fabulous actress and a dear friend who happens to be married to Armin Shimmerman, who played Cork? Kitty played two or three characters, I think, on Deep Space. Yes, on Deep Space, yep. And um, she is a pancreatic cancer survivor of now 18, 18 years. Mm -hmm. My brother, my dear brother, Daniel Frakes, died of pancreatic cancer when he was 41, a week before my now 25-year-old daughter was born. And we took him to Penn, University of Pennsylvania Hospital. He was jaundiced. They opened him up. They looked at him. They closed it back up and essentially said, You know, he lives. He has six months to live. And it was, you know, it tore my family apart. My, my mother and I sort of mourned and, and cried. And my mom lived to be 94. My dad never really recovered because he couldn't fathom the idea that his son, who was, was dying and did die, And it's, you know, it's, it's part of my, my uh, heart. So Kitty asked me, ironically, at the Marina Surtey's going away party when she was finally going back to England, if I would get involved with this uh, pan can. And I was, I was, I'd never really had a charity that I had, could have passionate connection to like this. So I had, uh, I said, yes, wholeheartedly, yes. And then, so for the last couple of years, I've been, helping to raise money. What they're doing now, which is exceptional, is that they're developing a blood test that can give some sort of early detection, which is obviously the best thing for all cancers, but pancreatic cancer was so devastating. They had a, when Daniel died, they had a 2% survival rate. When Kitty was diagnosed, there was a three or 4% survival rate. There's now a 10% survival rate, which still sucks, but we are moving in the right direction. So the money we raised at PanCan essentially is to help to encourage people and to develop this early detection blood test. Thank you. That was very
2: thoughtful, Ian. Of course. All right. You ready for a speed round that I'm gonna throw in here? You don't Dude, need to no. go into great detail, but just have some fun. What's your favorite color? Purple. Mine too. That's interesting. What's Your favorite movie of all time? Goodfellas. Interesting. What role of yours, other than Riker, does your family like most?
1: Wow. (laughs) My family. My family.
3: Doesn't know much about Riker, let alone any of my other roles. Oh, probably uh, a character from... um, Hill Street Blues, a uh, drug dealer from Hill Street some, one of the kids saw, I said, oh, you were good in that. Thanks. It's here to discuss a uh, profit-sharing plan for your employees out front. <laughs> good. That's very, very really good. I like this guy already.
2: <laughs> <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, how big a fan were you of Luke and Laura?
3: Who I knew I—that's a very good question, which leads to an interesting subject. I married Jeannie Francis for the people in the United States, who is a an icon, a soap opera icon, kind of a legend, who's been on and off General Hospital playing Laura for forty-five years. She and I were both cast in two miniseries. One was called Bare Essence, where she was the star of the show, and I was this. Um, bumbling uh, brother in the one of the families and uh i used to flirt with her in the makeup trailer but she was far too young for me and we a few years later we were both cast by the same producer by chuck mcclain in a miniseries called north and south which was a uh, big abc 12-hour epic mini-series about the civil war with uh, patrick swayze and that we were out on location in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, Natchez, Mississippi, and to make a long story short, we fell in love on this show and have been together ever since. But I was, again, I was attracted to her, I was flirting with her, I used to follow her. We all smoked at that time, and so I'd bring her a Diet Coke and knock on her dressing room door and say, hi, Jeannie, you want to just have a cigarette and a Diet Coke and wait you know. <laughs> and uh, But had I known what a legend she was. I would never have had the guts to, um, to be that forward. I, didn't, I don't know, I must have had my, it's like I was from another planet because Luke and Laura in the 80s was a cultural phenomenon, ironically, not unlike Star Trek, right? But mm-hmm. bigger, they were on the cover of Newsweek. It was a big, big deal that had I been aware of it, I don't think I would be happily married for the last 35 years to this woman.
2: Interesting. Every Star Trek fan has one person from the franchise they'd love to meet or never got to meet. Mine would be Roger C. Carmel, for example. I would love to have met him, had a drink, do an interview, never got to. He was gone before I was writing about anything. What's your choice?
3: Well, I had the privilege of meeting all of them because Gene was still with us and I worked with the cast from uh, the original show. I will say that DeForest of the original company, who is no longer with us, was my favorite. He, for some reason, he, he used to live down the street from Rick Berman, who was the key yes. of Star Trek when I worked. And I met, I met um, the, at Rick's house, I believe, once or twice at some kind of event. And I remember when First Contact was, I think I may have told you the story before, after First Contact was finished and released, I went to a friend's house in Great Barrington, Massachusetts where Jeannie and I sort of hung out and hid because I didn't know what this was going to be like. I'd never directed a movie. I'd never had a big studio. It was a big deal. It was an open, you know, it was a, it was a franchise. It was a really big deal and I was nervous. And fortunately, the you know, start uh, First Contact was a, was a hit and a success. But D had tracked down Berman who had tracked down me and Great Barrington, I think this might have been pre-cell phone, even. So I got a call from DeForest Kelly to congratulate me on the success of this movie. And that stuck with me forever. Wow. Did you know that story? For... I never heard that. There the, you
2: Joe the is a success already, it's a success. There you go, that's what we're here for. All right, now here's one. Denise Crosby told me a story the other day that I had never heard, which was you? in season one, all of you guys had crappy trailers and you borrowed quote unquote borrowed stuff like pink flamingos and twinkle lights from the Paramount prop department.
3: We put AstroTurf out. We had flamingos. Yeah.
2: Take me through this to spruce up your trailers and create a little village. And then it got shut down by somebody. So what do you remember of that? And what did you borrow for your trailer? Well, we borrowed, we, we,
3: we, they were called the Jerry Lewis boxes. They had two, I think they had metal wheels on the back and they could be lifted up like, like a, uh, tag, like something you hook on the back of a, a hitch on a, a truck and be moved around. There were boxes with, um, they may have had an air conditioning unit. They may not have, they may have had a They were
2: in unit. window is what Denise said. They were the the ones you literally had to put They're in a window. The window and there was a door and
3: they were, you know, they were the, they were the, the uh, <laughs> training wheel of, of trailers. <laughs> they were the beginning. They were the, uh, so we we had a bunch of them lined up. And I think what we did was we, we jimmied them around so that the the doors, so it would feel like a courtyard and it was the doors would face in. And then somebody stole AstroTurf from the prop shop or something like that. And then somebody found some flamingos that we could stick or that would stand up on the AstroTurf. And we'd take our folding chairs and put them out there. Like we were on a patio. It was a very funny, uh, funny time. And uh, we made the best of, it was really not that bad a situation, frankly.
2: So there's that famous 1987 memo, uh, the casting memo, and it notes that you, Michael O'Gorman, Greg Marks, uh, who's one of the Marks brothers' grandchildren, uh, and Ben Murphy were all up for the role of Riker, Riker spelled with a Y. And that O'Gorman, quote unquote, seems to be a favorite. If you had not gotten the part, who from that list, or maybe somebody else entirely, do you think would have made a good Riker and why?
3: My understanding was that by the time I had gone through my seven auditions over six weeks, there were two of us at the end. Billy Campbell, you know who the Rocketeer? Sure. Who came back and played Okuda, I think, the outrageous Okuda, the outrageous Okana, (laughs) Michael
1: Okuda.
3: (laughs) Sorry, Michael and Denise. Um, my understanding, though, it was it was B- Billy Campbell and I, and uh, I think Campbell would have been wonderful. I'm a big fan of his, so to have gotten down to that, if that's true, which is what I'm told it was, that was a very nice place. A very, it would have been a, a nice guy to lose to.
2: And then, if I could play God or genie in a bottle for a moment and say to you, I can arrange for you to have as good a career as a musician, huh. as you've had as an actor and director, but you can't have both. It's either success as an actor and director or everything on an equal level that you've achieved as a musician. Which would you choose and why?
3: Well, I don't know. I don't know what it would have been like. I, I mean, I had the absurd dream of playing the trombone. At one point, actually, well, I was in Natchez with Jeannie, I was sitting in with a trio. Uh, it actually was a quartet, they had a sax player and a piano, bass and drums at a place called Under the Hill, which was a bar in Natchez, Mississippi. And I'd sit in on Tuesday nights with them. I think it was Tuesday nights or Friday nights. And I'd do a couple of songs on my trombone. I was a better player at that point. And they really, and, and the people from the show would come down and Jeannie would sit there at the end of the bar, flirt. It was, it was a great, wonderful time. And after doing this for a couple of weeks, I said, you know, Frakes, if you'd like, you could join our band. We have a regular gig. We do Jackson, Hattiesburg, and Natchez, Mississippi. We got we got a standard gig. We got one one town. So we got three three gigs a week. And I thought, this is, is this the dream? If I, is is this my new opportunity? Because I was like number 37 on the call sheet on North and South. Right. So I said to Jeannie, who I had I think we were, I think, pretty involved at this point what would you think if I, if I decided to take this job? <laughs> she thought, well, you know, do whatever you want to do, but I'm not sure <laughs> being a trombone player in a quartet in, in, the, in small towns in Mississippi is quite what you're, which I think she was really saying is quite what I'm thinking about being
2: with. <laughs> <laughs> I'll support you. I love you. I'll support you. but, but There you go. That's kind of like my wife when I said I want to be a writer full-time. Yes. And, but you did it. Here we are, all these years later. All right. So I've heard lots of stories, honestly, that I haven't heard before. And I'm hoping you've gotten a couple of questions you haven't heard a ton or if ever.
3: I knew you were going to rise to the occasion. Well done.
2: All right. So we're going to move to a fun segment that we're going to call Show and Tell. It's just like the old school assignment uh, back in the day, where you're going to show something or we're going to show you something, and you're going to tell us the stories behind it. So. All right, so I'm going to ask you to show us some of the things in your office. And then, Uh like I said, we've got a couple of things we're going to show you. So show me something.
3: Let me show you something that uh, a fan spent a lot of time, I'm assuming, chiseling or making
1: and gave to me at a convention one time.
3: Ooh. Very cool. Right? Yeah. Wild Bill Riker.
2: Now, why, of all things, do you still have that? Why? What do you love about I, that?
3: I just felt like somebody put a lot of work into this. And it's it's just absurd enough to appeal to me. So that's some fan art. I also have an interesting product right here. This is a, uh, as you can see, it's the Delta. Or it looks like the Delta. It is right. made from, and it is a gift from, the special effects department, who created the shape from used pieces of, you know you see those sparks falling in the background of all of our shots on discovery and deep space, not deep space, but discovery, strange new worlds regard. There's a new technique where they burn off some material that this actually is, and they, in slow motion, it falls, it's beautiful, but may or may not be toxic, but it certainly leaves shrapnel. And that shrapnel gets swept up and has to be cleaned up by them. And then these guys, and it weighs a ton. They scraped it together and they gave it to me. And it says,
1: it says,
3: hmm, strange new worlds. 32K, something, I don't know what that means. Anyway, that's that. That's in my office, which I love.
2: Very cool. Don't you have a black version of that too?
3: Oh, of course I do. But that's the 3D printed version. That's the, that came out of somebody's, that's the prop
2: department, I believe. Okay, but let me me show you a photo. Wait, before you jump to the next one, Jonathan, check out this photo. Yes, nice transition. How crazy is that when sci-fi fantasy impinges on reality?
3: I know, I wish that guy had a smile on his face. But I know. That real, that's the real deal. I think that is the communicator from either Picard or Strange Nowhere. That looks very familiar to me, like a, a recent, accurate, real prop. That's
2: but are I'm you thinking. always amazed when you please. see people in a situation like this? I mean, the, look at the gravitas of that situation. And somebody i mean, is walking in the door saying, we should be having a better hopeful future. That's what that person is actually saying.
3: I couldn't agree more. I was, That's exactly what I was gonna say. He's saying by wearing that shield on his lapel, the choice I make is to believe in this future that uh, Roddenberry created. And, and it, didn't, it didn't go unnoticed, did it, in the press? Nope. Yeah.
2: Very cool. All right, you were gonna show me something else? Well, we got something else
3: that I found this morning that you've made, like, which is the very rare collector's item, a Riker hat, in case you didn't know who was on the cover, very cool. Right.
2: Do you remember how and why you got that? Is there a story behind it?
3: No, of course not, but there, is a, there was always a, a uh, policy that whatever merch yeah. was made, we would get one of. So I suspect that that's
2: what this is. Oh, I always thought it was two. Okay, that's interesting. Huh. Fair enough. And then talk to me about Take the Spoons.
3: Oh, that's funny.
1: This guy here, in um, Insurrection, when
3: they fled the village, the Baku, for some reason, there was a prop that was handed out to about 40 extras, and it it looked like it was a wooden spoon. A giant wooden spoon. A giant wooden spoon. And I remember when we were shooting it, because we shot. A shot after shot of these people running across bridges and through hills and fat you know so we kid bring spoons brings and so it's actually a misquote of what i used to scream from the uh tele- from the uh video village which was bring spoons and people thought oh they are fucking freaks is being wild and loud and so they thought they heard take the spoons and then there was a case of them made. fast forward to the end of the show my crew gift from me to the whole company was wooden spoon which i don't have one of but i had hundreds of them made and given out as a thank you gift to the to the company of insurrection
2: right they're actual wooden spoons with like a little thing stuck onto them them, right like a little plate that says thank you from frakes to to the cast and crew right you don't have one i do not have one you'd like one wouldn't you i would like one
3: i think there are some left over i might be able to track one down for you
2: all right that'll that'll be my goodie bag if you ever find it all right. So let's show, let's show this next photo, if we can, please, guys. <laughs> All right. Come on. Come the good on. old days. Those so tell me things. about, tell me about uh, whipping out a titty to distract them. All
3: right. This is a costume designed by Bill Tice, who was the costume designer from the original show, who was with us on season one. Um, and I believe this is the episode where uh, it's a, planet run by women is that right
2: yeah angel one is the episode Angel one
3: and they dress riker as a uh an object of quote unquote desire the best part of the photo besides my left nipple is marina's face
2: Uh, denise's is pretty funny too
3: both of them but they're frakes what in god's name are you wearing is what i see coming out of their heads
2: all right, now, funny story with this. For Christie's auction for the 40th anniversary in 2006, that outfit was described as follows. Riker's boy toy costume, a loose shirt of aqua blue chiffon woven with metallic threads with a pair of corresponding mauve pants with green strap decoration worn by Jonathan Frakes as Riker. Guess how much it sold for in 2006. 7 dollars A little higher, 1,800 bucks. No way. 1,800 bucks, and I guarantee you it's worth a lot more now. Who has it, you? No, I was gonna say Jeannie. (laughs) (laughs) Johnny, can you put this on now, please?
3: Uh, Uh, did. I I wore some embarrassing things. I was also the only person who would go into the black slime in that episode where Denise's uh, funeral episode. That was nuts.
0: We have people who need attention. We won't hurt you, but we must help them.
3: There you go.
2: Anything else you got back there?
3: I have a great picture of uh, Delancey and Lavar and me that I've always enjoyed. Which you've probably seen. that Joe Gotts fit.
2: Where was that taken? What's the story behind it?
3: Brent had set up a photo session, or Gotts had requested a photo session with all of us. Brent's friend of this famous photographer got, but we all had a separate time so we go in and he was going to shoot us individually and uh Delancey and lavar and i obviously showed up at the same time and he said why don't you guys come in here and uh he busted i don't know how he got us because we are really genuinely laughing i think I, that doesn't that looks real
2: to me yeah it doesn't look posed
3: yeah so i always i love when people catch a real emotion instead of something where you know, you know the great photographers find a way to
2: to catch you all right, so your journey continues. What have you not done yet in the world of Star Trek that would interest you? Do you want to direct another feature? Do you want to do the pilot of one of the subsequent series? Do you want Riker to die? What have you not done that would be of interest to you?
3: Yes, yes, no.
2: <laughs> Take me through it.
1: Um, I would like to be involved in the...
3: Uh, in the, in the the birth of one of these shows. That's, um, that's a very attractive job. I, first of all, I love more and more working with these, with the writers that I've gotten to know over the years. When I was on, when I started to direct, it was in the, I mean, I shadowed everybody and it was in the third season. And I didn't understand, and probably it wasn't as intense as it is now, it's a writer's medium. And in the last five or 10 years, there's always a writer with you on the set. So you can, and when you get along with that writer and you can collaborate with that writer, the actors who always have questions about the scene or about the story or about an arc, the writer can take that, he can help you or she can help you or they can uh, bail you out or they can, you know, explain what's coming, what they know from the writer's room, what's coming down the line, which helps actors understand why they're doing this now. So I would... uh, yeah, I'd be thrilled in being part of the, uh, the birth of one of these series. That would be a thrill. I'm not sure that the movie business is what it once was. I know that uh, Tom Cruise has certainly resurfaced as a movie star and that movie has done the kind of work that or kind of box office that movies used to do, but I'm very happy making television.
2: If there was a show back in the day that you would have liked to direct other than Star Trek, what would it have been?
3: Well, back in the day, I tell you right now, I'd love to do uh, Fargo, I'm crazy about uh, Killing Eve. And I love Ron's show. Um, Jeannie and I both watch um, For All Mankind. Mm-hmm. A great show. So there, it's, it's hard to get out of the genre. So I'm, you know, again, I'm grateful for what I've got, but those are shows that I watch. For instance, we've been watching um, The Flight Attendant which has Mm -hmm. such fabulous pace and great editing and great storytelling. It'd be fun to do a non-Star Trek, that's for
2: sure. There you go. And when you are on a set, especially of Star Trek, Jonathan, you are the veteran. So what do the people on set, whether it's cast or it's crew, what do they ask you? I mean, they must pick your brain if they're not too scared of you, right?
3: Well, they're hopefully not, not too scared of me. What I found more and more, is the cast as these new casts, especially of Discovery and and even and the younger people on Picard and this this the group on Strange New Worlds who with I just finished with them last week. Anson knows and uh, Ethan Peck knows and Rebecca knows because they were they were with us on Discovery, but the cast has heard and has been invited to and is getting a taste of and a glimmer of what the outside that whole world that you and I know of the, the crews and the conventions, and the fandom, and the, uh, the the international phenomenon that you are part of, and the family that you are part of. And what a privilege it is, and somewhat of a responsibility, and you can have as much of it or as little of it as you can tolerate. You either like it or you don't. It's um, There's a real curiosity about that part of it. I think there's a generally an excitement about it, but. It's unlike a lot of other shows and it's not, I mean, we're, we're having this conversation 35 years after the show, That would right. that's not usually the case.
2: I've really enjoyed this. I hope you've had a good time doing this.
3: I have, actually.
2: <laughs> good, all right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to catch up with you and I'm, I'm sure the fans will uh, love hearing what you had to say.
3: Nice job, Ian. Well done, thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Hi there. This is Chief Master Sergeant Walter Harriman, your favorite gatekeeper. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a certified Stargate technician? Well, now you can find out because I'm going to share my knowledge and experience with a select group of aspiring and enthusiastic gators. I want to give you a chance to be a hero, too. That's why I'm happy to announce that on March 11th, I'll be taking a small number of students for my class, Gate Tech. 101 tickets are on sale now at the companion.app slash events you won't want to miss this because it's not just a stargate master class it's a stargate chief master sergeant class see you there but for now chevron 7 is locked